Now, speaking of ministry, and particularly mercy ministry, we're picking up on that theme um, this morning, and then after this morning, we just have one more sermon on mercy ministry, and then we enter into what we call the Advent season, which is a time of preparation for our celebration of our Lessons and Carol service, Christmas Eve, as well as our Christmas Day uh, services. So, uh, with that is a little bit of a background, I want to draw your attention to Isaiah 58. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you haven't turned there yet, um, otherwise we have the words on the overhead, but Isaiah 58, and what I want to do is I want to read verses 1 through 12 with a special focus just on a couple of verses this morning. So let's uh, draw our attention to uh, Isaiah 58, verse 1, and to give you a little bit of a context, um, the people of God have, as we find so often in the Old Testament, kind of turned their backs on God. Well, not kind of, they did. And um, what that resulted in was a kind of a counterfeit religion, um, a religion of appearances, but not reality. And so the Lord brings that out, and without further word, let's just, let's just read the passage and let's get the, the situation before us. Cry aloud, don't hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They ask, why have we fasted? And you don't see it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness and undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst and the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden like a spring of water whose waters never fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. I want to end the reading there, and uh, A.V., if you put up verses 6 and 7. 
focus on verses 6 and 7. Here's what we read. Is not this the fast that I true, uh, choose? In other words, isn't this what true religion is? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Isn't that what true religion is all about? Isn't that what true spirituality is all about? About loving God, as Jesus says, and your neighbor as yourself? What does it mean to love our neighbor? Is that just have warm feelings huh? and uh, warm fuzzies in our heart to a fellow human being, especially those in the church, or is it more? Does it require um, Does it require sacrifice? The kind of sacrifice that we show to the hungry and the, and the poor and the naked. You know, um, Jesus thought that these words were so important that he draws upon them in Matthew chapter 25, um, where he says, to the extent that you do it to the least of these. And you say, well, who are the these? The, the, exactly the kind of people that we have here in our passage. The hungry, the naked, the poor. Those are held by bonds and chains of life. To the extent, Jesus says, to the extent that you do it to the least of these, do what? Show them mercy, show them pity, show them compassion. To the extent you do it to them, Jesus says, you actually do it to me. When you show hospitality, whether here or hopefully at times in your homes, when that person comes into your home, or when we have a guest who we're not familiar with in this church, and you extend a hand of welcome, or you love on them in some particular way, do you ever look at that person and see Jesus? That's the heart of the matter. Because if we don't, then, then you know what our passage says, uh, in the context, in the text itself, basically saying then, then your, your religion is really nothing more than, than uh, cosmetics, a little more than appearance. To, to, to give you a very uh, a brief um, illustration of that, um, it was, um, I was reminded at this time of year, it was just a little less than a year ago that, that my brother died. Maybe some of you remember that. He wasn't that much older than I was. And some of you may recall, I think I've noted this before, that um, in his professional career, he was a TV anchorman and producer. And I remember one particular time, I uh, uh, flew out to visit him, and he, um, he said, why don't you come to the 6 p.m. newscast today? And I said, okay. So I went there, and I don't know if you've ever seen a newscast, what goes on behind the scenes, but it's really pretty fascinating. And especially the last couple of minutes before the newscast um, started at 6 p.m., I mean, it's like a beehive in that, in that newsroom. And all the production people are getting ready. It's pretty sophisticated. And the camera guy's ready, and he's getting his teleprompter ready. And then eventually the co-anchor sits down about two to three minutes before the newscast. And finally my brother comes in. His brother's Bob. And Bob comes in, and he has this suit coat, and he's got this nice shirt, and he's got this nice tie, and he's got the cake on. That's what he called it. The cake is the makeup. He has to, they have to put on, um, somebody has to put on the cake or the makeup for the cameras and everything. And he's wearing sweatpants. <laughs> and I said to him, what, what are you doing wearing sweatpants? He says, want to be comfortable. And he had no problem with that because you have a, you have a desk there, and so he sits down as the anchorman, and all you see is kind of 
well, what you, what you see here, all you see is this, you know, but imagine if I got sweatpants under that, right? And I just stayed and you never really know about it. Well, the, the people who are watching, all these thousands or whatever, who are watching him on air can't see that. So he figures, what, why not, you know? And ever after that, I thought, I, I don't know if I can ever watch a 6 p.m. newscast the same. I'm wondering, is that guy wearing sweatpants or what, you know? So that's the way it was. And, and my point with this very short illustration is, is that with my brother, it was like appearances can be deceiving. For thousands of people are watching on air. And so it was with the people of God in this passage. Appearances were deceiving. You say, well, what, do you, what do you mean by that? I'm saying they were so-called spiritual. They were very religious. But it was all kind of a veneer. It was like, it was like the cake on my brother's face for the cameras. It was, all, it was all designed for appearances. So what I mean specifically by that is that God's people were, were all doing kind of the right things. So they would go to the temple and they would bring their sacrifices and they would pray and they would offer their tithes. And also what they would do is they would, they would fast together. Um, and that's immediate context here in Isaiah 58. The Lord is talking about their fasting. So they're going through, through all of these, emotion, uh, all these motions, but it was all, like I said, it was cosmetics. Um, it was it was, it was all appearances. So when you look at the passage and you see other places, the Old Testament or even the New Testament, which we're going to get to in just a moment, when, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you see this in the lives of God's people, the fundamental problem isn't what they were kind of doing so much in terms of performance, ties and prayers and fasting. But what the Lord was, was seeing at that point is, is like, it's not what they were doing and going through the motions, it's what they were failing to do as part of their religion. They were, they, were, they were failing to repent genuinely. They were, they were failing to die to themselves and open themselves up truly in their hearts before the Lord. They were, they were failing the poor. They were failing the, the naked. They were, they were failing the hungry. They weren't ministering to these types of people. And, and it, has, it, has, it has struck me personally in the last year, especially in, in kind of researching this whole Mercy Ministry series, how... How in the earliest books of the Bible, particularly in the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and then you go to the major and the minor prophets, and then you go into the New Testament, and how often it hasn't been the case with God's people that so often things appeared so right and so orthodox and so decent and orderly, and yet the Lord calls them out. Because he says when it comes to the weightier provisions of the law, caring for those in need, you are simply negligent. So the Lord's like, what does that tell me then about all these other things that you were doing? Are they genuine or are they not? This is what he says in verses 6 and 7. Is this not the fast that I choose? In other words, we could say this. The Lord's saying, is this not true spirituality, true religion, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of a yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not, and notice how simple this is, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, and when you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. That is, not to hide yourself from your fellow human being. Well, I want to get back to verses 6 and 7 in just a moment, but we have to realize that this kind of cosmetic religion, um, this was not the first time the people fell into this, and it would not be the last time. 
Let me give you a few examples of that before getting back to verse 6 and 7. AV, if you put up the first passage um, from Matthew 23. Jesus is addressing the religious... There it goes again. Okay. Same thing as last week, right? Look at Matthew 23, 23. Jesus is addressing the religious leaders of his day, Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, look at, look at these hard-hitting words. Woe to you. Now, stop just there. You know what the word woe means, both Old Testament and the Hebrew, and in the way it's used in the New Testament? When Jesus is pronouncing woe, he's pronouncing a covenantal curse. I mean, very strong language. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You tithe dill, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, namely justice, faithfulness, and mercy. These you should have done without neglecting the others. So these Pharisees, these religious leaders, were hyper, hyper religious. And they had to go through all these performances, and they went beyond the call of duty. They even tithed some of the smallest of spices unto the Lord, and they dedicated it to the Lord. And, and the Bible never required them to do that, but they went beyond the call of duty. So Jesus sets them up, and he sets us up to go, man, they were religious. Man, they were spiritual. And Jesus is bogus. I'll tell you why it's bogus. Because while you do these things, you're neglecting the weightier provisions or the requirements of the law. Like what? Justice, faithfulness, and mercy. He says you're not doing that. You're all tithing the particulars, viewing yourself so religious. But these weightier things, you're neglectful. These you should have done without neglecting the others. Jesus never presents orthodoxy as an option. You need to be orthodox. You need to be right in your doctrine. You need to preserve the truth, absolutely. But Jesus says, but you need to do more than that. You need to have an outward face. If your religion is so precious, what do you do holding on to it? You give it to others in word and deed. Go to the next one if you would. Revelation 2, verses 2 through 4. Jesus Christ to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your works. Your toil, and he begins with a commendation, okay? I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you do not tolerate those who are evil, and you have put to the test false teachers. I know how you are bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Ah, but I have this against you. You have lost your first love. You know what Jesus is saying himself to the church? He's saying, good for you. You got these three things going. You got doctrine, discipline, and determination. You're burying yourself up in the face of persecution for my name. But even though you have all these things going for you, so many marks of the true church going for you, there's something wrong with your heart. You've lost your first love. Now, he doesn't define what that means. It could be that the initial love that you had for me right after your conversion, you've, you've, that's dissipated. Or maybe it was love for a neighbor. We don't know for sure. But the main thing is the heart of love was missing, although they had all these other things in place. So, so much was right, and yet so much was wrong. One other. One other one. Next one. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Jesus Christ, the church of Sardis. I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Oh, I know you. You're in the performance. You're doing this and this, and you're so-called doing everything right. He says, but, but you're not alive. You kind of do things right and orderly, but it doesn't mean you're alive. So he says, wake up. Man, you're sleeping. Wake up. You see that? So the so reason I bring these passages out 
is to say what we have here in our passage has been reflected throughout the scriptures, both what comes before this passage in Isaiah and what follows in the New Testament, particularly in the passages that, we're, that, I, just, that I just showed you. Okay? So, as we look at that then, I want to draw your attention back to verses 6 and 7 because now Jesus says, okay, it's, it's very easy to indict. It's easy, even from the pulpit, to point fingers, but it never helps God's people to feel like, oh, maybe we've been hit up, or maybe he's talking about other Christians, he's hitting them up. That doesn't do any good in the end unless more positively say, okay, well, then what, what does the Lord require of us, right? What does he require? What does he desire? Look at verse 6 again. I'll deal with verse 6, and then I'm going to deal with verse 7. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. In short, Jesus is saying, not only are you enslaved by your own sin, although you've got blinders on to it, but I think when he's talking about bonds of wickedness and the straps of the yoke and the oppressed, he's, he's primarily here referring to those outside the covenant community, those outside of the church who are who are, who are bound, okay? So he talks about those who wear bonds, who, wear, who are wearing chains of some kind, those who are wear yokes, who are bound by burdens, and who wear oppression, those who are bruised by life. Now, um, I don't know to what extent you've ever um, invested in someone who, who is wearing chains and various yokes and who are oppressed in some way and who are in need of our mercy. But oftentimes what you find, if you work closely with them, you see certain themes oftentimes. And here are the themes. Many times when you work with people who are really, really broken, not in every case, but oftentimes they come from some kind of history of dysfunctionality. And I'm not even talking about them so much as a history of dysfunctionality to a certain degree in the homes that they were raised. Now, you want to talk about our own homes? Listen, we, we all have dysfunctionalities, right? I can all, we can all look at our mom or our dad and kind of go, well, you know, I don't think, maybe for some of us we'd say, I, I wasn't really abused, but I saw some forms of dysfunction. So there's no perfect family. But many times when you deal with people who are really steeped in difficulties and who are deeply oppressed, they come from dis, uh, oftentimes dysfunctional families where even at the youngest years they were not given tools for life. So that by the time they get into their teens or their early 20s and even after that, they're running into certain issues where they start making decisions for themselves that unfortunately have long-term consequences. And what they end up doing is they kind of dig this hole for themselves and then they get down into that hole, either self-consciously or unconsciously, and then they can't climb out. And that's why they need mercy. You know, they need somebody to come alongside of them, see them in the pit and say, okay, you need someone to draw you out and now you need someone to invest in you to help you deal with some of that dysfunctionality. I mean, that's just a reality. So the question is, who's going to do that? Who's going to do that? And you know what the Lord says? You are. I am. Together we're going to do that. You know why? Because that gets at the heart of true religion. Think of this text from the book of James. James writes, um, and maybe some of you know this, right? Um, this is true religion, he says. He's very, it's very simple. This is true religion. Uh, remember? To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's not very hard 
uh, to understand, is it? It's not deep, deep theology. To minister, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and keep yourself unstained by the world. None of us here should ever think that we have some kind of celebrity status as Christians. And all pastors should realize that when God calls a pastor into the ministry, it's never celebrity status. So he can somehow attain a position of notoriety and power and all that. Boy, does the Bible put us in our seats when it says, you want to know what your task is? You want to know what true religion is? You pay attention to the widows, you pay attention to the orphans, and you pay attention to the poor, and you keep yourself unstained by the world. Okay. But, but what does that look like? What does that look like? And this is great. Passage is very practical. And the Lord says, okay, this is what it looks like. This is what true religion looks like. Verse 7. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the poorless home, uh, poorless, uh, homeless poor into your home when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? What is the Lord simply saying here? You know what true religion is? See the guy who's hungry or that young kid's hungry? Feed him. You see that person who is ill-clothed? Whether, they, whether they, they grew up in a dysfunctional home or they come to you as a refugee, you see them ill-clothed? Clothe them. Um, the, 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 the homeless poor, right? If you take a look at verse 7, bring the homeless poor into your house. The homeless poor could be like those who just simply have no roof on their head. Oftentimes when we think of homeless poor, we think of the homeless guy on the street. Well, it could mean that. It could just broadly speaking mean those who don't have adequate shelter, those who in this area of the city uh, especially um, who can't afford, affordable, you know, they don't have affordable housing and they struggle with that. The word for homeless poor is actually one word in the Hebrew language. It's the, it's the word marud, marud, which really... When, when we read this in our day and age, in our English text, we get the idea, well, this is like the homeless guy on the street. Really, it's any person who is poor, who is destitute, who is restless and has no one to turn to. Psalm 68 refers to these individuals as the solitary ones, those who run into issues and they have no one to turn to. If you run into issues, who do you turn to? If you belong to Pathway, you turn to members of Pathway. You turn to the diaconate if you run into situations where you're having a hard go. Or maybe you got family. You can turn to mom or dad or cousins or whatever. You know, that's a great thing. Not everybody has that. And then, and then the, the real kicker is this. And is not true religion not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Not... Not to see a need and go like this, to hide yourself from a fellow human being. You know, it's kind of like, no, I don't see it. There's a wonderful example of that. Well, it's kind of a heartbreaking example, but it's a good example of this um, in, in something that we looked at a couple of uh, months ago, where it's the Jesus is teaching on the Good Samaritan, right? Where you have this individual who's walking on a road and he's beaten, he's assaulted, and he's left by the side of the road to die. He's lying there. You remember the story where you have a priest and you have a Levite. They're part of the religious establishment, by the way. And they see the guy, and it's very interesting in the Bible, say the guy is over here, they just don't look at the guy and then walk on. No, what they do is they see the guy and they go to the other side of the road, you know. And we do that too. You ever look at someone who's really in need and you just kind of put a little distance. You just 
I, and then you say, I, I don't have time to deal with that right now. You know? So it's the priest and the Levite thing, and they're, they're walking over here. The religious establishment, the ones who should help, don't. Okay, then you have this guy who's called a Samaritan. And you know, Samaritans are not looked highly upon by Jewish people, and even Jesus himself separates himself from Samaritans theologically. You see that in dealing with a, a woman at the well in John chapter 4. won't get into that now. But anyway, the Samaritan, my point is, the Samaritan who is the one who who shouldn't be helping the guy, actually does. And he ministers to the guy, he cares for his wounds, he puts the guy on his animal, he brings him to an inn, or what we call hotel today, and then he goes to the management of the hotel and says, I want to put this guy in the hotel, I want you to take care of him, and here's the money for that, and if you need more later on, I can supply that. I mean, he goes beyond the call of duty. He invests his time and his own money into that guy. And then, this is interesting, Jesus turns to a, a lawyer. He's a man who's articulate. He's a theologue. And Jesus says to this lawyer who, who initially asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically says, love God and your neighbor as yourself. And the man felt pretty justified, pretty satisfied that he was doing all that. And Jesus says, okay, let's talk about true religion, shall we? Help that guy. Jesus says, the last words he says to the lawyer is, now you go and do likewise. Now that's the hard thing. Now how, how religious are you, right? Help this man. You know what? I have found, and you, you, you know by now, I, I tend to be, maybe some of you think sometimes too direct with preaching. I think you need to be direct. This is what I found. I found that there are a lot of churches who like the idea of mercy ministry, but not necessarily the reality. Many conservative churches, by the way. They like the idea, but they don't like necessarily the reality, the investment that it takes. There was an individual that I knew who had been married for a number of years, and his marriage ended. And I, I said to someone who was close to that individual, who knew the individual well, I said, what do you think happened in the ending of that marriage? And he said, you know, I think so-and-so... Um, like the idea of falling in love. And he liked the idea of being married. But I don't think he liked the reality of it. Because if you've been married for any amount of time, you know that if you are not willing to die to yourself in order to put your spouse before you, you're going to have a hard go. And sooner or later, you've got to learn how to do that. You know? And, and that's, that's the case, I think, with people in the church. They, they like the idea, but when it comes to the sacrifice, when it comes to the investment, and when it comes to the potential being taken advantage of, that's a hard sell. That's a, that's a hard sell. But the Lord calls us to do it other, anyway, you know. Um, and, and some people have. Let, let me give you a quick example of this. I've, I've mentioned the name um, Jack Miller some time ago. Uh, here and his wife Rosemarie and he was a pastor of a church in Philadelphia called New Life Church and he, he grew up in very conservative in, in Orthodox Presbyterian Church by the way if you know anything about that they're really they're, they're, they're in many ways very theologically solid and they're, they're doing a lot better in terms of their church planning and everything there's a lot of neat things going on there but um, Miller was at a time where he realized, at this, and this was like about 40, 50 years ago, that while they were very theologically orientated and astute, um, there were holes in the churches and in, in, in the denominations um, ministry. 
so he said, you know what, we're going to do something different. We're going to be orthodox. What we're going to do is we're going to open up ourselves more to mercy ministry. We're going to actually just take people into our homes. And that's what he and his wife did, and that's what a number of the members of the church did. Now put the quote on, if you would, please, A.V. The Millers, this is a biography on the Millers. The Millers welcomed all sorts of people into their home. Troubled college students, Ugandan refugees, felons, people who are mentally ill, and many others. In order to take some of the burden off Jack Miller and his wife, Rosemarie, New Life Church bought a house in their neighborhood to be used for hospitality ministry. Sometimes, you know, you think, what would happen if we had all the money in the world, all the things we could do? It'd be kind of cool to get a house, just a separate house, and then we use it as a church to minister to other people. That's what they did. The house was called Hillside House, and it quickly reached capacity simply by transferring in house guests from the Miller home. Jack wrote, through the struggles with strangers in our home and those of Hillside House, we learned a great deal about human corruption. We learned to endure depressions, laziness, ingratitude, and sometimes the slander we welcomed into our, of those we welcomed into our lives. But in the conflict, I found that I grew as a pastor in an amazing way, partly because of my own heart. My own heart was often revealed in all its ugliness and insincerity. You know, when you, when you minister to others, though it's not always an easy thing, um, and you do take, get taken advantage of, it's also a beautiful thing, not only because of what you're doing for the sake of other people, but also what they end up doing for you and how they build your faith as you reach out to them. So as you bless others, you actually receive a blessing yourself. And the reason why I say that is because it's not in our text, but as you go later on in Isaiah 58, um, this is what you find. Can you put it forward, that final? There you go. The Lord says this, okay, if you engage in true religion and you minister to these people, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will shine in the darkness and your gloom will be as noonday and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places, and you will be like a well-watered garden and like a spring whose waters never run dry. Those are, those, you see the beautiful imagery there? You have, a, you have a spring that never runs dry. You have this, maybe some of you have gardens, and when you have a well-watered garden, you just see the flourishing of the garden. So all these images here reflect um, uh, a people um, who are, who are, Happy, a people who are healthy, a church that's healthy, and, and a people and a church who are, are flourishing like a well-watered garden. And who are these people? These are people who see mercy ministry not just as an idea, but as a reality. And then they say, and when it's a reality, saying, we are joining hands together for this and as as we do and we're, we're beginning to do that now and we need to keep praying that the Lord will increase opportunities for us not just for the benefit of others but also for our own benefit and for our growth in faith and may the Lord give that to us um, we have other things we're going to do today we're going to have fellowship and we're going to hopefully uh, um, love on one another we're going to eat with one another and then we still have a second service after that. So for now, let's uh, come to the Lord and let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, um, make us a people of true religion. Not only a people who love the Bible, and not only a people who love our reformational heritage and love our history, but Lord, also a people who are ready to um, rise above and move forward from that as well and implement what we know and what we cherish in the lives of others who are simply not given what many of us have been given in our homes, in our church experience, in our history. And so, Father, give us that kind of heart. Give us, give us the heart of Christ, a heart of compassion, which we'll see again this afternoon, a heart of passion and a, and a heart of pity, but also, Lord, help us to be a people who love, oh God, to go to the next step and invest in others like the Good Samaritan with the man who was assaulted by the side of the road. And Lord, help us to be prepared that sometimes these things will not always pan out. Sometimes we'll be taken advantage of. But Lord, we temper that with the fact that whatever we do, we don't ultimately even do it for that person who needs our help, but we do it for the sake of Christ who calls us to these things and our reward is in him. And so we bring this before you this morning, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.